right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Cool. I think all of you got more sleep than, than we've been getting the last couple of weeks, so I don't want to see anybody falling asleep. If you don't know, it means we had a new baby. Henry is right up here in the front row. He's just over three weeks old, so uh, if you want to see him, he's adorable. But uh, yeah, so again, my name is Alex. I, we get to finish this series called Questions, and I hope you know that this does not mean we've answered every question. Um, hopefully that this is just a start for maybe a lot of the questions that you've been asking yourself. Maybe you've started asking new questions, and that's great. So hopefully this is just a great starting point for us as a church to, uh, to get a few answers, but then ask more questions and continue to go deeper in our, in our faith. But I want to start this morning by asking you a question, by a show of hands. So by a show of hands, how many people here have heard the phrase, because the Bible says so? You ever heard that? Okay, good. I think I saw pretty much every hand. Okay, this is one of the most common, or not one of the most common, but it's a common phrase that comes from the mouths of Christians, right? We love to say it because it's like we have this authority, right? We, we slam down like, the Bible says so, so that settles it. But it begs another question. If you've ever heard this, that statement, really what it should is it should cause us to ask, not, maybe not necessarily us, but we should expect people to ask. Did I leave? There we go. I'm back. <clears throat> um, but it should beg the question, so what? So what? Who cares? Who cares what the Bible says? Because if you don't believe in the Bible, then it, has, it does not matter at all what the Bible says. Couldn't matter any less. So unfortunately, Christians will use that all the time, but it's really not convincing at all to people that don't believe in Jesus or don't believe in the Bible. So this begs the question, so what? Why should I care? So the question that we're going to tackle this morning, the question behind all of this is, is the Bible reliable? So this is the question that I get today, because really this is what makes all the difference. If the Bible's not reliable, then it doesn't really matter what it says. But if the Bible is reliable, then what it says is really important, right? So this is what we're going to be tackling. And I want to preface this too, knowing that... Uh, a lot of us have a lot of questions with the Old Testament, and that's okay. This morning, in particular, because of our time constraints, I'm just going to cover the New Testament, because if you don't know, there's a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We call that the 400 years of silence. So when Jesus comes on the scene right at the beginning of the New Testament, the Old Testament has been established for a long time. They're, they're very different, but they... they obviously come together in a unified story of God's word. But I'm going to focus solely on the New Testament this morning just to help us to see, okay, is the New Testament reliable? Because it deals with Jesus, his life, his ministry, what he said, what he did. It deals with the early church. It deals with Christian teaching. And it's often what's attacked the most. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And another preface, I'm going to nerd out a little bit on you. So... Hopefully you stay with me. I'm going to try to make it a little bit exciting. I'm really excited about this message and uh, the nerdery behind it as well. But all that to say, I'm going to try to tell a story and give you some history. So if you're taking notes, this is a great time to take notes, write down some of these dates. If you want to go back and research some of the stuff, please do, because there's a lot of research to be done. Um, and I really encourage you to dig deeper. So when we answer this question, is the Bible reliable? The first question that we really should ask in the midst of this is, does the Bible that we have today, does this Bible accurately reflect what was originally written? I don't know if many of you have really thought about this, but this is one of the things that gets attacked a lot, is, is this Bible 
what was actually written 2,000 years ago. Obviously a different language, right? They didn't write in English. But is this accurate? So I want to tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Jesus. Pretty cool dude. Walked the face of the earth 2,000 years ago. Told some cool things. Taught some great things. And then his followers decided to tell all these great stories. But eventually they wrote it down like 30 years later. So it was kind of the game of telephone for quite a few years. Anybody play the game of telephone? Okay, so telephone. They share the message, and then they share a message, and then over time, you know, you lose some details, maybe things get really exaggerated, and by the time the Gospels are actually written down, it's wildly different than what Jesus actually taught. And then from there, a bunch of guys got in a room, they picked the books of the Bible that they liked, called it the New Testament, and they threw out the books they didn't like. So what we have today is really not at all what was originally written, and all the Christians in the world lived ignorantly ever after. Has anybody heard that story before? Snippets of it? Sure. Yeah. So this is a common story, a narrative that people say and talk about in the world that we live in about the Bible. And unfortunately, it's really not true at all. It does not stand the test of history. But it makes sense, right? If you hear that story, you're like, okay, it kind of sounds like that would make sense. It's believable. So I think that's why a lot of people, when they hear it, they just accept it. They pass it along. And they don't really stop to say, well, does that actually make sense? So I'm going to tell you a different story. How did we actually get the Bible then? And this is where, I get, where I'm going to go a little bit more in depth here. So write notes, try to focus a little bit and follow with me. Different story. Roughly 30, 33 AD, Jesus Christ is crucified. His followers claimed that he rose again three days later. He was with them for 40 days in this new kind of uh, spiritual body. Teaching them, guiding them, and then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. Again, this is what the, the, his followers claim. This is what the Bible says. So Jesus ascends into heaven, and... Then his disciples, his apostles, the people that followed him, and actually when he appeared, he appeared to over 500 people. It wasn't just the apostles. 500 people. But they started going around traveling and sharing this message, telling people what happened. And if you can try to put, them, put yourself in their shoes, right? If you can imagine this, you just witnessed your leader, the guy that you followed and gave three years of your life to, be brutally murdered. Three days later, he shows up again. He's fine. In fact, he's like kind of glowing a little bit. He's got this new body, but he still has the scars in his hands. Teaches them and explains to them, look, I'm the savior of the world. I'm the Messiah. I'm here to give salvation to anybody who would believe. And so when he ascends into heaven and passes on the baton, they're ecstatic. They just want to go tell everybody they can possibly find, right? So they share this message. Jesus told them to share this message. And as they went, they began to form communities. We call them churches. Communities of people that believed, that accepted that message and decided, okay, I'm going to follow this Jesus person. I'm going to figure out this, how, how, what this looks like. So churches began to be formed. And after so many churches had been planted, you can kind of see in this map, uh, Paul in particular was one of the greatest missionaries. He made uh, lots of journeys all the way through the Mediterranean and Asia Minor and planted these churches. But once so many of them were formed... And some time had passed. Some of the apostles, Peter, 
Paul, um, and a handful of other people started writing letters to these churches. Now, they wrote these letters to be helpful, to, to give some instruction, say, okay, you're a bunch of young baby Christians here, and you're, you know, you're trying to figure this whole thing out. Here's some tips. You have, you've had some questions. Here's some answers for some of your questions. Here's some of what Jesus taught. Here's some theology to help guide your, your way of thinking. So they wrote these letters to, to be helpful for people in their faith journey, for these churches. And what happened is that very, very quickly after these churches received these letters, they started using them as scripture. They started teaching from them as if they were scripture. So for example, um, one of my favorite letters, 1 Corinthians, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. That's why it's called 1 Corinthians. It's the first letter that we have that he wrote to this church in Corinth. So what they did is they would read this, they'd receive it, they'd read it aloud, they'd teach it. But then they would make copies. They're like, this is really important. We gotta get this down. And you know what, we, we got our, 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 our church buddies just several miles down the road in this other city. Let's, let's write a copy and send them a copy because I think they would benefit from it too. So these letters began being circulated. They were copied, they were circulated amongst all these churches and used as scripture. All of that started around the mid-40s, if you're keeping track with the, the historical timeline, in the mid-40s. And then roughly around the year 60, we have the first gospel written down. Mark. So we have four gospels in, in, in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books are basically just biographies of Jesus' life. So enough time had passed, right? If you can, again, imagine Jesus crucified roughly 30, 33 AD. So 30 years later, they kind of expected Jesus to have come back by now, but he didn't. So they're like, okay, maybe we should start writing some of this stuff down. <laughs> maybe we should start writing down his teachings, what he did, and then, you know, we have it set in stone. So they started writing down these gospels, starting in the year 60. And if you think about it, that's, that's a long period of time, right? How many of you remember what you had for breakfast last Tuesday? Polly, you do? What'd you have? What I always have. <laughs> That's one way to remember. Have this, eat the same thing every day. <laughs> so we have, a, we have a hard time remembering things, right? Anybody in the room? This is another challenging question. I think Brian asked this a couple years ago. But who in the room could mem like has 10 phone numbers memorized that they could just rattle off right now? and know who they're associated with. <laughs> yeah, okay, there's a couple. I see two hands, that's it, right? I'm gonna throw the younger generation under the bus. I think you know your own phone number, Ethan, but I've met some teenagers that don't know their own phone number because they don't have to know it. You can just share a contact, right? It's really easy. We've got contacts, we've got access to information. So we're the generation, we live in a day and age where we have access to all of the information in the world at our fingertips. And that's how we're taught. We're taught how to access information. 2,000 years ago, they didn't have that. They didn't even have copiers. Paper was extremely valuable. So most of their teaching was done orally and you would just have to memorize it. That's how they were taught. So, especially when you look at the Jewish community, it was normal for young Jewish boys to memorize, they were forced to memorize the first five books of the Bible, word for word, by the time they were 12 years old. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? Even some of the books that we make fun of for being the most boring, they memorized. And that was just the first step. That was their elementary education, right? From there, only if they were the best of the best would they go on to be rabbis. So when we kind of think about this game of telephone, this is a common thing that people say. Like, oh, it was probably just a game of telephone. There's no way that, that when it was finally written down that it was accurate. Not necessarily. Because they lived in a culture where memorization was everything. That's how you learned. They were extremely meticulous. They were detail-oriented. They had formulas for remembering stories and narrative extremely accurately. So when it was finally written down, we also should note that it was written down by apostles. At least two of them were. The other two were written by people who were really, really close to apostles and basically took all of their stories and their content and put it down. So you have John. John's one of the apostles. And Matthew, he's one of the, one of the apostles. Mark and, uh, and Luke were two people that were like, tied to the hip of other apostles. So, so it wasn't passed down the line. It wasn't like the 23rd person down the line hearing a message who finally decides to write it down. These are also the, the people that walked with Jesus. So all of these Gospels were written between the years 60 and 100. Just to, again, to give you a little bit of a historical timeline. You following with me so far? Okay. Throwing out dates and, and monotonous details, but hopefully it's exciting for you. It's exciting for me, right? <laughs> um, so these were all compiled and circulated to the churches, right? Once the Gospels were written, they were copied and copied and copied and sent to every church. So very, very quickly, in the early 100s, every single one of these churches on that map that you saw, every single one of them had a copy of all four Gospels and all of the letters that we have in our Bible today. They all had them. And they used them as Scripture at a very, very early date. So fast forward few hundred years. There's a guy named Constantine. He's an emperor of Rome. You may have heard his name, right? Most people see him as he's the guy that made Christianity the national religion of Rome. He officially made it their religion. That actually never happened. Fun fact. In the year 313 AD, he legalized it, which is a little bit different. Um, so Constantine, if you look up his conversion story, it's kind of legend at this point. We don't really know if this really happened, but we do know that he believes himself to be a Christian. His conversion story is pretty crazy, but he became a Christian, and in 313, he legalized it. And basically what happened is, you know, over those several hundred years, Christians were being killed, murdered for their faith. They were having their property just taken from them by the government. They were being punished left and right for their faith. So Constantine finally comes along and says, you know what, no, no, no. The Christian faith is going to be protected. It's going to be legalized. And of course, since the emperor himself considers himself to be a Christian, gradually it becomes the most popular religion in Rome. But it never became the official religion of Rome. But Constantine, as a young, early Christian, didn't really know a whole lot, finds himself in this position of power, and he decides to use that power to help the Christian faith a little bit. So what he does, and you can, you can imagine this too, a few hundred years pass after Jesus died and rose again. Teachings kind of got a little bit wonky, right? There, a few teachers started rising up and teaching things that were pretty different from what the Bible said, from what these early documents said. And there were a lot of different heresies rolling around. Heresy is just a fancy word for false teaching. And pretty much every, like, 
I'll say this too, we should be sympathetic to the heretics. We really should. Like, no, no heretic is out to destroy the Christian faith. They're doing what they believe is, is a way to make sense of the faith, right? So they were wrestling with, okay, how can Jesus be fully man and fully God? How, that's not even possible. So, for example, there was a heresy rolling around called um, Arianism. And Arianism was basically, okay, how do we make sense of this? We'll just say that Jesus wasn't God. We'll just chop that part out. Jesus wasn't God. He was fully human, but he was the best human. He was like ultra-righteous, and then God picked him as his special servant and called him his, the son of God, right? So that's an example. But there's all these heresies floating around. So Constantine, he decides to call a council of all the bishops that he's aware of to say, okay, we need to get on the same page. Christians need to get on the same page. We need to figure this thing out. So he calls this council, and over 400 bishops show up. And at this point, the church has grown to the extent where a bishop was someone who oversaw an area of churches. So 400 bishops, bishops show up to this council. The first council was in 325. It's called the Council of Nicaea. And what happened, what was pretty common back in that day is that these bishops and a lot of leaders of churches, what they started doing is they started compiling their own list of the books that they thought were authoritative, if that makes sense. So they would, they would write down like, okay, we think that these gospels are scripture, we use them as scripture, we think these letters of Paul are scripture, so we're gonna add, they made their list and said, this is what we consider to be scripture. They did that independently. Constantine did not ask them to do that. But what, what happened is these 400 bishops show up to this council and every single one of them has their list with them because they considered it to be important. They all show up with their list, and these lists were pretty different. They're all over the place. But the consistent strand, which I think is remarkable, is we have, of the 27 books of the New Testament, there's 27 of them, 21 of those books were on every single list. Every single list of 400 bishops. You try to get 400 people in a room and agree on your favorite, like, I don't know, top 10 favorite movies. You're going to get wildly different answers, right? Let alone politics. If we get into politics, ooh, that would be dangerous, right? But 21 of the books of the New Testament were unanimous. Every single bishop was using those 21 as scripture. All four gospels are on that list. So you may be wondering now, okay, well, what about the other six? That's, that's kind of concerning what happened there. Um, again, imagine this, right? You get this, this room of bishops in this room, um, 400 of them. Some of them included lots more books, like 40, upwards of 40 different books that they would consider to be scripture. Some had like 25. So really what happened is, is they needed to figure out, okay, well, why are you using that as scripture? Why are we not? And they decided, they basically came up with a list of 10 disputed books. That's the word, disputed. So of the 10 disputed books, six of them were eventually affirmed as scripture. And I'll give you an example. Uh, the book of Hebrews. Anybody here like the book of Hebrews? It's one of my favorite books. It's, it's really powerful. That was a disputed book. It was not unanimous. But there was enough people who used it as scripture that they, they argued about it, talked about it, and eventually it made it in. And I'll give you the reason why. All of the disputed books were incredible books, all of them. But there was just one thing missing in each one of them. So the book of Hebrews, 
like a lot of books in the Bible, was written anonymously. A lot of the books of the Bible were written anonymously, but we know who wrote them. But Hebrews was one that slipped through the cracks. So it was written early. It was circulated around all these churches. But they had no idea who wrote it. They had no idea. We still don't know. We don't really know. There's a lot of theories. Some people think it was Luke. Some people think it was Paul. Some people even actually think it was uh, one of the women that followed Jesus. There's some pretty cool theories out there. But we don't know. So all that to say is that was a red flag. They're like, okay, this book is amazing in every other way, but we don't know who wrote it. Should this really be scripture? Eventually they decided yes. Another weird one, or another disputed one is a weird one, book of Revelation. <laughs> Anybody wonder why that was disputed? Nope. <laughs> well, you have a problem with a, the ten-horned dragon? And like ten eyes and all the, I don't know. The imagery is insane. I love the book of Revelation. It's crazy, but it's weird. It's super weird, and it was abused. Some people were really messing around with, with that and quoting it in really weird ways. So they brought that up. and like, okay, should this be scripture? But all that to say is six of those eventually were affirmed. Some weren't. And I want to give you one, just, just for fun. And we can read these today. So I've got this book. Um, this is one of the perks of going to school to study some of this stuff. Um, I've got this book. If you're interested, it's called Early Christian Fathers. You can just Google that. It's basically compiled by this guy named Cyril C. Richardson. That's a cool name. Cyril, Cyril. Um, Early Christian Fathers. So this book is a compilation of a bunch of letters and documents that were written very, very, very shortly after the New Testament. So one of them in here... It's a letter by a guy named Clement. He was a bishop of Rome. And Clement wrote letters too. There's a lot of other letters written. He wrote this letter to the church in, um, in Corinth from Rome to be helpful and it was used. And a lot of these churches used it. Same thing. They copied it, they used it, and they taught from it as if it were scripture. But at this council, they, they stopped. And they're like, okay, well, let's talk through this a little bit because he's not an apostle. So where do we draw the line? Like, could it be two generations removed from an apostle that, that we would consider that to be scripture or should we narrow that down? So what they did is they went the more conservative route and they believed that pretty much it had to be written by an apostle or someone extremely closely tied to an apostle in order to be scripture. So Clement, he wrote this letter really early. It was written in the year 96, 97. We, we can demonstrate that. It shows up in history. But they ultimately decided, you know what? Clement was not close enough to an apostle. So it's a great book, but we're not going to call it scripture. Does that make sense? So all that to say, I want to wrap this up a little bit, is, is the Bible was understood to be the Bible very, very early on. Even though they did call these councils together in the 300s to nail down, okay, what are we going to actually call the New Testament? Virtually every single one of these books was used unanimously by every church for hundreds of years as scripture. It was a lot less picking and choosing and more affirming what scripture was. Like they didn't pick by preference. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, I really dislike Paul in, in that letter, 1 Timothy. You know, that's a really harsh book. We should just get rid of that. They didn't do that. So the way that we see this play out mostly, and again, I'm not sure what your pulse, if you have much of a pulse on the culture around us and what is being taught, but has anybody heard of the Gnostic Gospels? 
funny word, Gnostic, with a G. I don't know why the G's in there. Um, but the Gnostic Gospels, this is typically what you hear. Uh, there's National Geographic documentaries about these things. They show up all the time. I see news articles every so often, and it's the same narrative every time. Someone will come out and like, well, there's other Gospels, so Christians need to reevaluate their Bible, and everything they know about their faith could be wrong. It's this like, really big, dramatic thing. So there's a bunch of other Gospels written. We call them the Gnostic Gospels. There's the Gospel of Thomas. There's the Gospel of Mary. There's the Gospel of Judas, if you can believe that. It's a weird one. Um, Judas is the hero. <laughs> It's an interesting one. You can find all these online. You can read them. But all of these Gnostic Gospels, again, the way the narrative works is that, okay, a bunch of guys sat in a room and said, oh, you know, we, we like these four. We like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't like these Gnostic Gospels, so we're just going to shove them over here and get rid of them. That's not how it went. Because all of the Gnostic Gospels were written much later. Like I said, the four Gospels that we have in the Bible were written between 60 and 100. The Gnostic Gospels were written much later. The earliest one is the Gospel of Thomas. At earliest, it could have been written around the year 130. Any red flags there? Was Thomas alive then? Probably not. <laughs> That's the earliest one. Most of the Gnostic Gospels were written after the year 200. And even if, God, it, well, the Gospel of Thomas... Um, probably was written later too, but some scholars argue for an earlier date. All that to say is one, they were written much, much later. They were not being copied and circulated as scripture at all. And the names that they carried were false. Thomas did not write the Gospel of Thomas. We're almost 100% sure of that. Judas did not obviously write the Gospel of Judas. He committed suicide. He wasn't, he wasn't around. So there was this other religious spiritual movement going on next to Christianity called Gnosticism. And basically there was enough similarities that they looked over at the Christians and were like, you know what? We're going to try to claim Jesus as our religious figure. That's what they did. They tried to claim Jesus as their religious figure. So then they started writing their own Gospels and trying to grab names that would make it seem credible. So again, if you really take the historical narrative and see what happened throughout history, the Gnostic Gospels were never even a part of the discussion. They were so, so far over there. Not a single church ever used them as scripture. It was a completely different movement. So from a 10,000 foot view, what I'm trying to demonstrate and show us is that the books that were picked in the New Testament that were affirmed are accurate. This is the Bible that was actually written 2,000 years ago. This is what the early church really used as scripture. But I'm going to nerd out a little bit more on you this morning. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate, right? Okay, we, we know which books we have, but is that what they actually said? So we have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of scripture because like I said, they, they circulated them, they distributed them, they copied them vigorously and meticulously. So, I want to put this in perspective for you a little bit. With the New Testament alone, not looking at the Old Testament, the New Testament alone, we have in our possession, as a, the human race, 5,686 Greek manuscripts. Manuscript is the fancy word for copy, ancient copy. Over 5,000. If we go into other languages, other early translations, we have 19,284 for a grand total of close to 25,000 copies of the New Testament. 
pretty remarkable, right? But again, we don't really know until we take a look at the next book. So the New Testament, if you were to put this on a top 10 list, New Testament, first place, by far, with the most copies. Second place is something called the Iliad by a guy named Homer. Many of us read this book or this story growing up in school. There are only 643 copies of the Iliad that we have. That's second place. It's a pretty big difference, right? Not only that, but the earliest copy that we have of the Iliad was written 400 years after the Iliad was written. So there's a 400 year gap where we don't really know if the copy that we have was altered or changed in that period. We don't, there's a lot of time to, to pass. The New Testament, one, our earliest fragment, we have a fragment of the Gospel of John. The earliest one that we have was written down in the year 130. A portion of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written the latest, probably around 90 AD, so only 40 years. For an ancient book that's 2,000 years old, we have in our possession a copy from the year 130. And the vast majority of that 5,000 number, still over 5,000 of those manuscripts were written within 200 years of the originals being written down. So in comparison, we don't doubt whether the Iliad is accurate. Nobody, like, nobody is, is really meticulously looking at the Iliad and saying, okay, this Homer could not have possibly written this down. But the Bible has been maintained throughout history in a remarkable fashion. We can take these 25,000 copies, we can compare them, look at them side by side and see every single little difference, because of course there are differences, right? A lot of them are spelling or grammar, um, a couple, you know, missed words here and there, some things are, are uh, you know, it was actually pretty common for copiers, and you're writing by hand, of course. Sometimes they would just skip a line accidentally. You ever do that when you're reading a book? You accidentally skip a line and you're like, wait, what, what in the world am I reading? Or sometimes they would go back and copy the same line again. So there's a lot of things that by comparing 25,000 copies, we know what happened in the copying process. We can see very clearly, oh, hey, this scribe messed up here. And that's, and you know, of course, a lot of copies were, were copied off of that copy. So there's a family of copies that all have the same issue. But we have so many to compare them that what we have in our hands is an extremely accurate picture of what was actually written down. So in fact, and this is also fun, if you want to take a look at this, I've got a Greek New Testament in my hand. Um, all Greek. I took three semesters of Greek and I still can't read it very well. But all that to say, it's pretty cool. So scholars have taken the time to compare all of these manuscripts and they put together a New Testament of what they believe the original manuscripts, the original copies said, word for word. And scholars believe that what we have is 99.5% accurate to what Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, all wrote down. And the other, this is what I love about the Christian faith too. The other 0.5% we put in footnotes. We don't hide anything. We're, we fully disclose everything. We put it in footnotes and say, hey, even in English Bibles, if you open up an English Bible, you'll see some footnotes every so often and say, hey, you know, uh, there's a large number of manuscripts that actually use this word instead of that word. Or maybe they, like, a, a large number of manuscripts are missing that phrase. 
They're usually really small, but I love that, that the 0.5% that we're unsure about, we just put in the footnotes and say, look, here's another option that we, that we might have missed. But if you look at those footnotes, virtually none of, there may be one or two that we have in all of, in the entire New Testament that actually kind of raise questions as to what the meaning was. Every slight difference does not change the meaning of scripture. Does not change the meaning of what the, the writers were trying to say. Everybody take a big, deep breath in real quick. And breathe out. Okay. All right. That's mostly for me. Uh, <laughs> all right. Are you following me a little bit? Okay, good. We're done with the nerdy part. So all that to say, I want you to know that we can be extremely confident in what this book says. This is what was written down. Our English translations are all based off of this Greek New Testament. It's pretty remarkable. But it raises another question. So I've been, I've been trying to answer this question, is, is this accurately reflect what was originally written? But it, it raises another question. Okay, well, who cares if that's what they, they wrote down 2,000 years ago? Is it true? Is what they actually wrote down true? Can I trust it? And that's a trickier question. It's a more honest question. Um, but I want to tell you, and there's a lot of arguments out, there's a lot of support out there that I firmly believe in. You can do a lot of research or we can grab coffee or something like that. If you ever want to talk more about this stuff over coffee or something, reach out to me. I'll buy your coffee, so it's a win-win. Um, but if you really take the Bible for what it is, and you see there's this movement of men and women, over 500 of which were told that Jesus appeared to, 500 people staked their lives on this truth because the vast majority of them were brutally murdered for what they believed in. Can you imagine that? You can't convince me that 500 people, all of them, would willingly die for something that they knew was not true. Right? They knew if this was true or not. They knew if Jesus actually rose again and appeared to them or not. And not a single one, we don't have a single historical reference of a Christian raising their hand and being like, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we made the whole thing up, please do not kill me. That's all they had to do to save, to save their life. Not a single one did that. And then you see how this has been preserved throughout history. You see the mark that God's word, the Bible, has made on the human civilization. I think that this is a book worth trusting in. But to know for yourself, like to really know for yourself whether the Bible is true or not, you actually have to rely on it, right? So think about it. The question is, is the Bible reliable? Well, to know it, you actually have to rely on it. So to put this in perspective, some of you maybe have been staring at this chair all morning and being like, what the heck? Why is this up here? Uh, maybe it's been distracting you all morning and you missed everything I said. <laughs> uh, but if I look at this chair, it's a nice rocking chair, looks comfy. I can kick around it. I can look at the wood. I can look at how it's been constructed. I can stare at it all I want. And you know, I could say, yeah, this is a reliable chair. It probably will hold my weight. The only way for me to actually know if it's going to hold my weight is to actually sit in it, right? <laughs> and it does. Cool. I was a little worried there. Um, 
So that, it's, it's that way with the Bible. I want to encourage you. Think about it. If you really want to know if the Bible is reliable, we've done a lot of work looking at the Bible this morning, which is great, but you've got to get in it. You've got to read it, study it, memorize it. Base your life on this book. Make decisions based on what God's Word says and see for yourself if it stands. See for yourself if it's good. See for yourself if God speaks to you and shows up in your life. He has for me. I've tested this book and I still am convicted more and more that I need to be relying on this book more. And every time I do, God shows up. May not be the way that I expect or hope, but he shows up. He speaks to me. And if we take the Bible for what it says, some of the things that it says about itself, again, like if we, we've established that it's, it's accurate to what these authors wrote down. We've got uh, verses like 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17. If you don't know, we, we gather here earlier in the morning at 9.15 every Sunday morning to pray. We pray over everything. We pray over the service. We pray over you. We pray over our communities, our kids, our families. We pray. And uh, Alicia brought this passage this morning. It's one of the most famous ones. It's a great one to memorize. But 2 Timothy 3.16. If I could find it a little bit more quicker. Wow. Um, for all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we take the Bible for what it says and we trust it, we say, okay, this book, it's from the mouth of God and it's useful for everything. It's useful. If we look at another one, Second Peter Second Peter 1, 20 through 21, he writes this. He says, oh, I'm looking at the wrong book. This is what happens when I forget to take the time to put bookmarks in my Bible. <laughs> okay, Second Peter 1, 20 through 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible says about itself. It says, yes, it was written by men. We know that. We, we talked about it this morning. It was written down by human beings. But we believe the Holy Spirit is what carried them along. So what we read is actually from God. When we read this book, we are reading the words of God. And another passage, these are all great for memorizing if you're interested. Hebrews 4 Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This book is alive. It's active. God is continuing to speak through this book to each and every one of us. He spoke to a community 2,000 years ago, and he's speaking to us today. So what does it mean to actually rely and trust in those words? It means when you open this book, you expect to hear from God. You expect him to teach you something. You expect for whatever principle you read about, say, I, I should apply this in my life because God is good and he knows that this is going to benefit me or it's going to benefit his plan for humanity. 
So I'm uh, recently a father of two. Henry was born just, uh, just over three weeks ago. Pretty cute there, right? Teddy is loving being a big brother. It's adorable. It's so much fun to watch. Um, being a parent's been really interesting. I know many of you who, ha who are parents remember the why phase. Teddy is in the why phase right now. Um, he, was, he was here early with me at church this morning, and if you were around, you probably heard him ask a number of why questions. Um, incessantly, it does not end. And he's so obnoxious. But it's great, because he's learning about the world, right? It's a very important question, why? But when he asks me the question why, there's a question underneath that. Is dad reliable? Can, can he trust me? Can he trust my words? Sometimes I don't think he does, <laughs> because he just asks why, 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 why? And it's like every single day. I mean, earlier this week, we're like, okay, Teddy, we gotta put your shoes on, why? Well, we're going outside to get in the car, why? Well, I'm taking you to daycare, why? Well, because we go four days a week. We go, uh, you know this, why? I'm like, just because I said so, come on, kid. <laughs> just trust me. <laughs> Teddy's learning. He's learning whether I'm trustworthy or not. And it's going to take time. Hopefully. Hopefully I am trustworthy and he learns that. But the same goes for the Bible, right? You've got to get in it. You've got to study it. Base your life on it and see if it stands. Because I see in my own life, I see the strength and the power in this book more today than I did 10 years ago. It takes time. And it comes in a relationship with God, the, the, the God who gave us this book. So our, uh, our newest addition, Henry, <clears throat> he, uh, he doesn't really have a choice right now. <laughs> he has to trust us, right? He has no idea what's going on. If you see this picture, uh, I want to show you this next picture. This is, the, this is the look that he gives me. He looks at his mom very differently. But when he looks at me, it's like this weird suspicion of like, who are you? Weird bearded man? Like, my beard's long enough that it's hard to hold him without it rubbing up against the top of his head, and I think he thinks it's really weird. He has no idea who I am, but he's kind of forced to trust in me. He's in this position where he's basically helpless. And so, again, thinking about this, some of you may be in this place, spiritually. Some of you may be in this place where you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> you have no idea who God is. You have no idea why you're even here, but you're here. And God brought you here for a reason. Maybe it's because you're at a place where you know that you just need something and you're reaching for anything you can grab onto. Maybe someone dragged you here. Maybe you just know, knew I needed to be here this morning. I don't know what's going on, but I need to be here. Well, even if that's you, if you have no idea what's going on, that's okay. It's a start. And I just want to encourage every single one of us, wherever, wherever you're at, find ways to trust in the Bible a little bit more this week. Trust in the Word of God. Because God has given us everything in this book we need to know Him, to have a relationship with Him. And in this book is so much about salvation, about what does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean to, to know God? So I want to encourage you to rely on it, press into it, study it, read it, memorize it, base your life on it, make decisions knowing that what you read in this book is from God to you. And then you'll find out whether it's reliable or not. So I want to invite all of us to stand. I want to close by reading <clears throat> a passage of scripture. 
read this, uh, this passage from the, the book of Psalms. If you don't know, the Psalms are, it's a big book of poetry and worship. These were what were sung back in the day, right? Um, the Jews sang from the Psalms in all their worship services. Many of our worship ser- songs are written out of the Psalms, but it's very poetic. But um, I just want you to hear these words and reflect on these. This is from the mouth of David. This is what he says, his, 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 his poetic writing about Scripture, about God's Word. So in Psalm 19, 7 through 11, <clears throat> he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. Test it and see if it's true. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity for me to nerd out a little bit throughout history and through your word, but I pray, Lord, that you would just give us a greater confidence that when we read this book, that we are really, truly reading your words to us. It's just not, not another book that was written throughout history, but this is your word. Help us to trust you more and more. Help us to rely on you through the Bible. Help us to, to more and more build our lives around it, knowing that you wish to guide us, you wish to lead us into deeper relationship with you, you wish to use your people and have your church spread your kingdom throughout the world. Because you want to bring more goodness, you want to bring more salvation, you want to bring so much to the world around us. You have a plan, and you want us to be a part of that plan. So I thank you for that. Thank you for your word. And I just pray that we as a church, as Rock Creek Church, would become a community more and more devoted to knowing your word. That we would know your voice, that we would know how to listen to you, and that we would obey and just do what you say because you are good and because we trust you. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the series. Bless us this week as we go back into our our daily lives, our daily routines, back to work, back to our, our, our social groups, our neighborhoods, and help us to go with this confidence. Help us to take your word with us as we go and trust you in every aspect of our lives. Jesus, we give you the rest of this morning and, uh, and we worship you for who you are. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.